0: Welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, I'm your nominal host, Nate Larkin, joined by the real host and executive producer and uh, uh, wizard, uh, Aaron Porter. How are you doing, Aaron?
1: I'm doing great. It's not as cold in my garage this morning, although you wouldn't have known by my fingerless gloves for typing.
0: Yeah, I can see this fingerless, fingerless gloves, a toque, as they would say in Canada, that knit cap that you're wearing. It's
1: called a toque. A toque, man. So yeah. For, first, I'm a wizard. Now I'm a toque. It's all very Lord <laughs> of the Rings this morning. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. yeah it, it, I, it, I look like a beggar from Oliver. Please, sir, may I have another? <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> That's right. I know. I'm, I just see you and I'm fishing in my my pocket for change. It's just a <laughs> just a, a reflex. I, I,
1: I do a lot of meetings with Zoom and people ask about it, but I get out here at like uh, between five and six and it's not yeah. freezing, but it's cold enough that by eight or nine, if I don't have these gloves and hat on, the cold has soaked in and then I just have to take a really hot shower to defrost and I don't have time to do that in the middle of the morning. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fending out, I'm fending off
0: the cold. Well, I've got an electric heater with a fan blowing right in my direction. You can't see it. It's behind Uh, my seat and just warming the most important part of me.
1: See, see, this is last year was the first year we were in this house. And so during November, December, January, I had, uh, little space heaters going almost all the time because I didn't mm-hmm. want the cold to get to the wood instruments things like that. Yeah. We, we were on a fixed electric plan so just every month it was the same amount and then I got to uh June and our price was like $700 more. Oh, excuse me. And so I called them and they said, "Oh yeah, well, you know, it only gets reassessed every 6 months or so, but during those uh during two of those months your bill was $4,000." what space heaters you know people always said oh they'll really get you they're expensive but i didn't know that expensive so as we are approaching those months uh, the kids have already asked to turn on space heaters just for five minutes i'm like no nobody uses electric heaters in this house so I, I haven't worked it out yet but i have a guy that's gonna maybe try to put a gas heater out here but i'm terrified after that
0: <laughs> Holy smokes. Is that a California thing? Like, do you have really high electric rates anyway, and then they penalize
1: you above a certain usage? Or? I, you know what? I, don't, I just pay my bills. I don't know anything about my bills. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't know. And those those space heaters were on most of the day just to keep it, like, level out here. And you were, you were using multiple ones. Yeah. There was often two going for different parts of the day. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It's probably not – it's probably not as bad as uh, all that. I just overdid it, evidently. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was a glutton, and I paid for it in the end. <laughs> <laughs> so, how are you doing?
0: You know, I, I'm doing all right, adjusting to the change in seasons here, and uh, uh, very excited about the National Disciple Making Forum, which is coming up Ooh. just next week. We're just a week yeah. away from it. Uh, where. Uh, Samson House is going to co-host the men's ministry track along with uh, radical mentoring, Reggie Campbell and the boys. So and we're, and we're going to roll out the new Samson site then on the uh, 9th of November. And uh, I'm excited about launching virtual meetings. You know what I'm especially excited about? Um, <clears throat> we're going to start virtual meetings, of course anybody's going to be able to attend a, a, a virtual meeting, but we're going to have special meetings for senior church staff and for church staff.
1: Uh, nice. That's great.
0: Yeah. From your experience as a pastor and, and I love to tell the story of the pastor pirates in San Luis Obispo. And I lament every time that that's the only face to face pastors group that I know of that actually took root and thrived Uh from your experience as a pastor, what do you expect uh, might happen when we launch those pastors' groups online?
1: Oh boy, I I expect there will be a lot of non-senior pastors who will be excited about that. Oh, uh, from from my experience, out of the uh, probably eighteen pastors that were involved, I think uh-huh. there were three senior pastors. The rest really. Mostly associates, a few parachurch guys, and a few youth pastors, mostly just associate pastors
0: do you think it's because the senior guys uh thought they didn't need it or did that were they afraid that it wouldn't be uh, safe yeah. because there'd be no okay. there'd staff
1: guys there that's why I'm thinking we need to segregate the two um okay i'll be honest i'll be honest yeah. uh, I don't want to be but yeah. i did I did have a lot of face to faces inviting senior pastors and yeah. they love the idea. It seemed great. Uh, I don't, I don't need this cause I meet with my head elder once a week. So I have accountability. Yeah. And that was the end of the conversation. So I, I actually think they legitimately thought they didn't need it and had no reference point to understand what in the world I was talking about. Yeah. I also think senior pastors feel like they have more to guard. um, you know, being an associate pastor for a lot of years, I knew I was the church mom. The senior pastor was the church dad. <laughs> and yeah. I think moms have uh, a cleaner idea that they can come in with a little more vulnerability in general, whereas dads yeah. have to put up that manly front. Yeah. So I, I feel like I always had more space as an associate pastor Uh to be honest and do those things. So yeah, I think, I think everything you say is true. I definitely think seen, most senior pastors wouldn't want to be in a group with their associates right. uh, or other staff just because they haven't developed that culture of honesty within their staff for the most part. And there are certainly exceptions, I hope. Um, but for the most part, you know, you do business at church. It's not a family. It's not a, you know, it's a business.
0: I'll tell you what, though, I hear from pastors a lot, and the most common lament I hear from senior guys is, you know, there's uh, they know that if a Samson group, or at least they believe, if a Samson group starts in their church, they can't attend it uh, without tweaking it, poisoning it, uh, making it unsafe for other people. People want to perform for them. They don't feel safe going there themselves. Right. Uh, and that, and I, I've had a lot of senior guys confide in me that they know they need a safe place to be honest, and they're just at wits' end. They don't know. They don't know of a place.
1: So that can be legitimate. It takes a while to create, or you have to start a church that creates a culture, right? Where the pastor is believed to be a member of the church, fully human. That's how you guys pulled it off at Vintage. Yeah, it's, and and even at First Baptist, it just took a, a while to just say, this is who I'm going to be, and people accept that. Uh, it's, yeah. it's not that, But if you come into a culture that is already about facades and lies, then that pastor is right. They might want to be honest, but really they are not safe. And I, and I think that is the most common church culture.
0: I think yeah, that most pastors, they're offered a devil's bargain. We got a job for you. Your spot is on top of that pedestal right there, and we need somebody who can demonstrate week to week that uh, this whole Christian life is doable. Uh, you're going to tell us how to do it, and you're going to demonstrate that you do it perfectly, and we're going we're to give you respect, and we're going to give you money, uh, and you'll have stability and safety for your family, and, uh, but don't get down from that pedestal. Don't fall down, and don't get down. Uh, because we'll have
1: to replace you. Sadly, we will have to replace you because the pedestal is what the church is about. And when you say we will give you support and uh, what was the other word you used for your family? Yeah. Uh, But the the unspoken part is, but we will be holding that at all times and we can remove that. Like we will be, so the pedestal becomes the monster that how many pastors have you talked to will say like, well, I can't be honest about this because I will lose everything.
0: I still remember a senior pastor looking at me in a room of other senior pastors and saying, I feel like the door to repentance is closed to me. Mm,
1: ah, that's horrible. That's so painful.
0: Yeah. He said it with tears in his eyes.
1: Well, that's I am hoping that those guys will have a, you know, this this safe space to do this. And also that they can meet other pastors that maybe have found a way to begin creating a more honest and authentic culture in their church and that they'll get inspired to do that because yeah they've been handed the devil's deal but there's nothing better than robbing the devil blind so I hope they learn how to pick a devil's pocket and take back what's rightfully theirs oh so beautifully said Aaron and you're talking like a pirate so I I just like just, <laughs> <laughs> a, this whole conversation just pisses me off <laughs> I'm gonna go punch somebody <laughs> <laughs> oh well, we are going to do a mini meeting this morning, so we're going to take a quick break and come back and uh, have a two-person mini meeting.
0: It's a it's mini, mini, mini meeting. We had a request for more mini meetings. You know, we're going to have to Skype these guys. We got look. We got to get Mondo back in the room. We got to get we got to get Newton together. I mean, now that he's got the climbing gym built, Newton can at least attend a mini meeting, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I think he can at least zoom in, right? Oh, yes. Come on. Or, I, saw, I saw that gym, by the way. Holy cow, that's a gym. It's unfreaking believable.
0: <laughs> I just had a brilliant idea. We, what about mini meetings with listeners?
1: Yeah, boy, if you want to be a part of one, you can send us something that will then something else will be done. And then, it and then be magically
0: done. you'll be in the mini meeting.
1: <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Boy, okay, so if you want to be in a mini meeting, uh, you can send that request to pirate, pirate monk, monk podcast, at podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and then we will write back and say, here are the, uh, the times when you could do it if you're available, and then we'll bring you in. Wow, there's an idea. I don't know if this is possible, but we're throwing it out as an idea.
2: <laughs> I don't you see know why that. It's not.
0: Sure, it's possible. We have the technology.
1: <laughs> the Indians. Wait, yeah, sorry. I just got confused there when I said that. India has provided us fully <laughs> with the technology to do this. So yeah. thank you to India. Big shout out to India. Pirate monk right. Yoho, ho uh, Yo-ho.
0: Simrat and the boys.
1: All right. Okay. Well, we'll be right back with our many, our many meeting uh, on the Pirate Bond Podcast.
2: what you saw
0: Back on the Pirate Monk Podcast, and it's time for a mini, mini, mini meeting.
1: All right. Welcome to this mini, mini, mini meeting of the Sam Society. We are a company of Christian men. We're also natural loners who have recognized the dangers of isolation and are determined to escape them. We're natural wanderers who are finding spiritual peace and prosperity at home, natural liars who are now finding freedom in the truth, natural judges who are learning how to judge ourselves aright, natural strongmen who are experiencing God's strength as we admit our weaknesses. As Christians, we meet at other times for worship, for teaching, or for corporate prayer. Today, however, we meet to talk. Our purpose is to assist one another in our common journey. We do so by sharing honestly out of our own experiences the challenges and encouragements of daily Christian living in a fallen world. We have reached the sharing portion. Oh, that was fast. That's great. (laughs) It's a mini meeting. Okay. In sharing, we speak honestly out of our own experiences. We tell the truth about ourselves, knowing that our brothers will listen to us in love and hold whatever we say in strictest confidence. confidence. We try to keep our comments brief, taking care to leave plenty of time for others. We address our statements to the group as a whole rather than directing them toward any one person. As a rule, we refrain from giving advice to others or instructing them during the meeting, believing that such conversations are best reserved for private moments between friends. The suggested topic today is Nate. Well, I don't know. I don't have the topic list. You've got it up. Pick one. Have you got one there? <laughs> that was a that was a scrambling. Okay. Expectations. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was
0: not expecting that.
1: <laughs> you may speak about any issue that is currently commanding your attention. Uh, the floor is now open for anyone who wishes to speak. Okay. I'm Nate. I'll jump in. Hey, Nate.
0: <laughs> it's just awkward with two people it's, it's very strange <laughs> uh, at any rate uh well of course there is the old saw in recovery and these old saws really i mean they hang around because they're true uh that says that uh an expectation is merely a premeditated resentment um and uh th- th- well, that really sounded profound the first time i heard it it was a, it turned a light on for me uh, because up until that point i didn't realize that i was uh setting myself up for uh res- disappointment and shame myself and uh resentment and anger toward other people simply by the expectations that i was placing on myself and other people and um so, I love it that we open the Samson meeting with those statements about ourselves that we really are natural loners and wanderers and liars. <laughs> uh, one of my good friends uh, when he we do introductions at the meeting, you know he 'll say hey my name 's robert i 'm here to set the bar low um, and there is something about that it isn 't that we 're not calling each other to a better place. We do need to do that. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, your conversation with Ted Tibiase because I think he's going to call us to some uh, some higher things. But that's not the same as placing unrealistic expectations on ourselves and other people. Uh, Or even, you know... Um, you know, I had, I had expectations for marriage that marriage couldn't meet. No woman on the planet could meet all my expectations for marriage. Uh, And my wife, uh, fortunately, I think, you know, my wife's 10 years older than I am. And she'd been around the block a couple of times and she was much more realistic about marriage uh, than I was coming in. Um, I do kind of pity these couples that go into marriage where they've just been so programmed by uh Disney and romance movies and a squeaky clean evangelical churchianity that tells you if you will if you keep all the rules before you get married you make sure that you know you you know uh, <laughs> Uh, cover the rules. And then if you, if you pray hard and God shows you the right person and you marry that one person that God has uh, designed for you that uh, you're going to experience all these magical blessings in marriage and it's going to just be wonderful. The first time uh, you encounter the shadow in your mate, it can be absolutely devastating. I'm grateful that Allie, when she found out about my uh, infidelity, was, although, I mean, she was deeply wounded. It was a terrible blow. I regret that she had to experience it. She was not shocked, Um, and she didn't panic. Uh, as though she she didn't feel that she only had one option, and that was uh, to leave. And she was still able to see, even in the middle of that shock, uh, my humanity. She was able to remember the fact that we 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 were friends, um, and and it was possible because she didn't have unrealistic expectations of me. It was possible. Uh, for her over time uh, to uh, to create the place where some trust could grow again um, so uh, I don't know where I am on expectations right now I I, I do know that with when I uh, when I set, expectations too high for a day. I, I have the capacity to do this. I have the capacity to create an impossible to-do list. Um, and, and when I do that, I'm just setting myself up for disappointment later in the day when reality hits and I'm not able to accomplish everything that I set out to do. Um, I suppose that's a place where, I can, where expectations still can bite me in the ass. Um, I, I'm i grateful that Allie does not have I don't have the expectation I have the hope that I will not relapse I do not have the expectation that I will not relapse and there is a difference to me an expectation that I will never relapse uh, especially if that's the condition For, um, uh, my continued relationship with my wife and my continued relationship with God, that's like a sword hanging over my head when I set that up as an expectation. And I, I, I love overhearing Allie as she's coaching other women who are coming to grips with the fact that they married an imperfect man and that man has been in some way unfaithful to them. Um, and she, and she really tries to guide them into not extracting from the husband a promise that he will never do it again. What I hear her saying is that's not a promise he can make. He can hope it, uh, and you can get him to say it, but that's not a good promise for you to extract from him. Um, and uh, somehow removing that unrealistic expectation, I think, is essential to my ongoing. It makes it possible for me to wear my recovery like a loose jacket. It makes it possible for me to admit more easily that I'm in trouble when I start to approach the edge. Um, Yeah. So anyway, random thoughts on expectation. I'll stop there. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. I'm Nate.
1: Thanks, Nate. Hi, I'm Aaron. Hey, Aaron. I've been thinking a lot about expectations the last, it's probably been like nine months now, but I won't won't get into the thoughts so much as uh, when I said that word this morning, the two things that came to mind were the two sides of expectation. One, that I'm realizing what I expect or don't expect. From my spouse and children are somewhat representative of my level of love for them and trust I have in god hmm. i I want the expectations to be realistic that 's important, but I think especially in my marriage, when I get uh, move towards like, oh, this is just how it is. It's never going to change. I'm not even going to hope for anything better. What that represents is I don't care enough to expect us to grow or be better. Mm. And I have have certainly experienced that in certain areas recently where I'm just like, ah, forget it. I'm just going to let let expectation go. Mm. Um, so remembering that I, I kind of have to cultivate appropriate expectation for the sake of my love towards another person and giving a nod to god that yes you're capable of this too mm. but i think the flip side of that coin is i'm realizing that i put very few expectations on myself because i feel like i have done enough in different areas of my life that i'm just owed i i don't
0: mm. i don't
1: owe you anything yeah and i uh, that's that's a very real feeling even within my family if i'm if I'm cooking all the meals, if I'm spending all this time uh paying bills and making the money to do so and all of that well then you know what you don't get to expect anything of me mm-hmm. now it doesn't mean I believe I have some carte blanche to do whatever I want, but it also isn't completely removed from that mm-hmm. if if I am if you're not allowed to expect of me and worse than that, I don't expect from myself, Mm -hmm. then that is unhealthy and unhelpful. Mm. And I think that's kind of the place I've been in for, I don't know, between six months and a year where I've just had my head down and trying to do what needs to be done so much that it's taken away a lot of expectations of bigger growth things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's something I have to address, I guess. Of course, the last Samson meeting, what I said I had to address ended with God killing my computer. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what what's going to happen now because I said it out loud. So anyways, that's it. That's all I have to say about it. Thanks, Sharon. Yep. And uh, we have our interview coming up, yeah? This will be fun. Yeah. We have our first Professional wrestler on the show today.
0: Oh, I didn't tell you about my professional wrestling career.
1: Oh no, no, but I'm picturing it. But you had <laughs> one of those those lucha libre Mexican masks. <laughs> that, that I can I've seen Nacho Libre, so I can picture the whole thing. <laughs> were, were you in Nacho Libre? <laughs> <laughs> I was a body double,
2: actually.
1: <laughs> Uh, it was perfect with that mask thing. So all the wrestling scenes were not Jack Black. It was No, they
0: were me. They were me. Yeah. <laughs>
1: oh, well on that note, we'll be right back with another professional wrestler, the million dollar man Ted DiBiase on the Pirate Monk podcast. <laughs>
0: pirate monk podcast and we have a very special guest today the million dollar man is with us ted dibiase uh pro wrestling legend and uh aaron is going to go ahead and conduct this interview we're having some technical difficulties so i'm not going to be able to interject when the conversation gets going but we're going to put this conversation in the capable hands of aaron porter take it away aaron
1: Oh, All right. Well, welcome, Ted. Welcome, welcome. It is good to have you here this morning. For those that don't know, maybe there are folks that don't follow professional wrestling and they say, Ted DiBiase, the Million Dollar Man, who is this guy? Give us just a little synopsis.
2: Uh, The Million Dollar Man is a character that I played for the WWE, which was then known as the WWF. Uh, from like 1987 to, oh my gosh, well, as an active wrestler until 1993, and then post-active wrestling career to 1999 as a manager and a commentator.
1: Nice. And so you were a villain.
2: Yeah, I was like the ultimate villain. Though the Million Dollar Man would be wrestling's answer to Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, <laughs> he he literally, you know, his you know his motto was everybody's got a price. and He thought he could buy anybody or anything. Of course, uh, being the bad guy, I went up against you know uh, everybody's superhero Hulk Hogan and uh, you know Macho Man Randy Savage and, and and all the good guys of our era.
1: So, how did you get to that point? Like you're growing up as a kid, where did you grow up? <laughs>
2: I actually grew up all over the country because my father, my stepfather, Mike DiBiase, who came into my life when I was five years old, was a, not only a professional wrestler, but had a storied career at the University of Nebraska, I lettered eight times there, uh, four years in wrestling, four in football, three years uh, consecutive uh, national amateur heavyweight champion, conference champion. And uh, so I was a kid that grew up wanting to be like my dad. And, uh, Uh, I lost him when I was 15. He had a heart attack, died, uh, moved to a small town in southern Arizona. My grandparents lived there. I watched my mother sink into alcoholism, and uh, I was wondering if my dreams could come true. But as a young man, I, I also had a very strong What I call childlike faith in God, Uh, plus the things that my father had instilled in me in terms of, he always said, be a leader, not a follower, be the head, not the tail. Uh, You know, if you're willing to work hard, you can be anything you want to be. And uh, so I stuck to that. I pretty much, I mean, I got a scholarship to go to college and play football. Nobody had ever done that out of this little town. And everything's good until that point. And then I'm 18 years old. And the two things that crept into my life and then consumed me for 20 years was my pride, my ego. Uh, and that you know that's the story I mean I, I rose to a height of uh, fame in our industry that few people do I probably was considered one of the top five guys in wrestling in, in the the late 80s and early 90s and uh, you know, with all that comes along with that but we became like rock stars we're traveling the world literally their jets limousines the whole nine yards and I fell right in line with everybody and and it all came crashing down when I called home one day after WrestleMania, which is like our Super Bowl, and uh, my wife confronts me with adultery, um, and that was the beginning of uh, it. Was the beginning of me really, genuinely? turning to Christ and putting Him uh, as the, f- the most important thing in my life. Um, the realization in a fraction of a second that I had put at risk the most valuable thing in my life. The, the the love and devotion of a committed wife, as well as the stability, the peace of mind, and the future of my children, all for the sake of stroking my ego. Uh, because I didn't have a problem marriage, I was very happy at home. I was just on this massive ego trip. Uh, And that was the beginning of it, you know, and that's pretty much, uh, you know, the price of fame, the documentary that's coming out next Tuesday, it it, it tells this story and it tells the story of. You know, not only my personal redemption, but also the redemption of of, of my uh, my my family, the mm-hmm. relationship with my wife, uh, and the relationship with my sons. So, so, um,
1: so how old you and you and Melanie were married, <laughs> but you were already in wrestling, but hadn't reached that success. How give me the give me the early stages of that relationship.
2: Uh, Melanie was twenty when we married, and I was almost twenty-seven. Okay. And, uh, you know, and I tell everybody, I said, I was almost seven years older than Melanie. And I said that she waited 10 years for me to grow up.
1: <laughs> uh, that's uh, great. So what, what was your faith relationship like? Cause I know her faith plays a big role in, in bringing, bringing you home as it were. Uh, what was it like at the beginning? Was, was your relationship well, when, built on that?
2: When we, uh, you know, when we got married, um, we began to go to church. You know, I say we, um, you know, up until that point I'd been raised, uh, Roman Catholic and I was very, very, uh, devout in, in, in that childlike faith. Uh, but, um, you know, by this time I had, you know, I had drifted. I was already in wrestling. Um, uh, I wasn't really walking it out. I wasn't going to church, but I said, okay, you know, uh, new, new start, you know, I, cause I'd been married previously. I had a son from a previous marriage. Uh, I said, I want to do this right. And so we started going to a non-denominational church in Baton Rouge where I was wrestling out of at the time. And, um, I tell everybody, I I answered an altar call there. But what I didn't do is I didn't follow that altar call up with getting down to the Christian bookstore and buying a Bible and diving into the relationship. Mm. Uh, But my wife, on the other hand, her faith continued to grow. She was able to go on a regular basis. And I was not because wrestling uh, was all consuming. I mean, we wrestled every day of the week, sometimes twice on Sunday. And, uh, so her faith continues to grow. And and mine is, you know, I I call it an intellectual relationship. I have believed the gospel message most of my life, you know, but the difference between heaven and hell is about 18 inches, you know, moving it from your head to your heart. And it wasn't there. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, it's like, I tell guys all the time, I said, you know, before you can commit your life to Christ, you have to surrender it first and you're either all in or you're not in. And uh, I was not all in, and uh, so I believe God allowed me to take this journey. Basically, said, you know, go go get all the stuff you think you want. Go get all that, you know, g- you know, become the big star you think you want to be, and get all the trappings of what that is, and find out what life is like there without me. So there somewhere down the road, son, we're going to have another discussion about this. Right. And uh, so now, that's in, where I in was. That,
1: I mean, in that process, uh, how much did you become? The villain you had created—I mean, a, a lot
2: of it seems um, to mirror. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, some people would say even 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 Pete, who directed the the, the film, would say, you know, Ted had to be the million dollar man twenty four seven. Well, that's not—it's true, but not true. I mean, uh, I, I was I was chauffeured in, you know, Vince McMahon, who marketed me. Part of the marketing scheme was to me for me to appear to people to be that way because I was always sitting in the first class. I had limousine service all the time. I'm staying at high class hotels and all that stuff, uh, which wasn't afforded to everybody. Yeah. But um but you know, did I go around treating people like the million dollar man? Uh of course not. Right. But but but, but the, the money but the ego. But yeah. the ego and the money trip, you know, that that all came along with it. Uh you know and I and I don't know even if I had been another character would that have been any different because there were, you know, all, all the other guys were pretty much fell right in the line. We were like rock stars. Right. So it, you it, know, it, next town, next show, next party.
1: So pardon this question based on you were like rock stars. Cause I have never myself been a rock star. Uh, it seems like, when I when I read Ecclesiastes and Solomon goes through his great experiment, how he tried money, he tried laughing, he tried substances, he tried education, you know, he goes through all these things to find joy, but he does them to such an excessive extreme, it's like the rest of the world doesn't have to try, because if he couldn't pull it off, none of those things will work. But within the world you lived in, it seems like there's a whole different set of rules when you're in the middle of that and uh, a celebrity of any sort. Uh, it What what try to put us into that mindset uh, of the whole world, not just you, but you're surrounded by other people living in kind of this false world?
2: Well, and, and, and that's what it was. It was almost like living, you know, because like, uh, you know, in the documentary, you know, when one of my sons says, you know, dad, you know, like, uh, you know, you, 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 know, you were doing all this stuff, you know, and, and, and what about mom? And what about us? And it, it, it was almost like, it was like a person who had two different personalities. It's like, I was one person at home. And then when I left home, I, I was this, this other person. And, uh, it's, it's about it's filling the void It's it's like, you know, uh, it's faith. Uh, okay. You walk out into a Coliseum full of people and they're screaming your name and everybody knows who you are and, you know, they knew you, they know who you are. And then, you know, you leave the building and the whole day, but then you go back to a hotel and you're in a city you don't know. And you're sitting in a hotel room and you got four walls and a TV. Mm. Your family's not there. And then you do that the next night and the next night and the next night. And then you do that 300 nights out of every year that becomes a very lonely place, that hotel room. And that's when you start sauntering down to the bar and, 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 you know, then the succession of things begin to happen. And uh, again, um, you know, I, I, you know, it's like, I, I don't want to blame fame. I, it's like, it's what you make it and, you right. know, like, you know, there are safeguards, you know, I now know, I mean, cause I still travel, I travel as an evangelist and I travel and I speak and I'm not gone now I'm gone on weekends, but you know I have I have put those safeguards in my life. Uh, you know I, I've made myself accountable to like two or three people, and at any time that can call me and like when I check into a hotel, I mean I'll ask them at the front desk. You know, do you have uh, pay-per-view movies? And if they say yes, I go if they you have adult movies, you know, turn them off. I said I have no intention of watching an adult movie, but I'm going to do everything I possibly can to detour. Mhm. To detour that now. And and there's safeguards that I could have put in my life back then, but right. uh, but I didn't.
1: When you were living in that that strange isolation of going from the spotlight and thousands of people to totally alone, did you have any uh, friends that really knew you?
2: Um Well, you know, I mean, uh, the only, I guess, the friend that I've I've had since I met him in a gym in Baton Rouge was a minister who became a pastor whose name is Hal Santos. And, of course, when I was living this life, um, you know, he would call me periodically. He stayed in touch with me. I look back at that and realize that in my darkest hour, I didn't call my pastor. who was a wonderful guy, but I didn't have the same relationship with him that I had with Hal. And I realized too that when Hal would would be with me and talk with me, he didn't beat me up with religious questions. He simply showed me the unconditional love of Christ. And I knew when I called Hal that he'd help me. But outside of Hal, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, the guys that I was on the road with, they're they were like I wrestled with them. That we, we had that we had that camaraderie, like being in the army. You know, uh, you know, you might have a couple of buddies, uh, but do you know everybody? But no, you all share the same lifestyle. And and that's what I shared with all these guys. But did I have a real solid friend there? I would I wouldn't say so.
1: Hmm. So you were you were truly isolated then, (laughs) not being known. So here's I wanna I wanna come back to this this moment when things shift after Melanie confronts you, but but as you were talking about your dad, like this is your description is pretty super heroic. Like he is bigger than life. And I, I immediately thought of uh, you know, a person like James Dean or you know, someone who dies when they are still youthful and on top, and so they always remain that way. How, how is that similar that your dad died kind of frozen in a state of uh, amazing superheroism, and you never got to go through the full journey of discovering, oh, these are more of his flaws and what it was for him to be. So how, how did that play into your view of what it was to be a father?
2: Well, um, as I, as I grew up, I mean, yeah, I was 15 and he actually died. He had a heart attack during the wrestling. He was 45 years old. And, uh, and, and all of a sudden he was gone and he had, you know, I, I had lived to, I wanted to be my dad. I wanted my dad to be proud of me. And, uh, you know, the other people told me about his his career and all the things he did. He never spoke about it. He never bragged or boasted, none of that stuff. And, uh, uh, but now as I grew up, uh, I, you know, I, and I'm, I'm married and of course if if he'd have been around, I probably wouldn't have gotten married the first time. I was twenty years old, very immature. Um, but I, I grew up and I I got married and I, I had children and I realized how much I love my my boys. Um and then I also realized that, you know, my like my dad, my stepfather, he had been married before he had other children and I, I, I grew to know, knew his other kids from his other family. So I went, wow, I started realizing, you know, even though I loved him, I still, I still hold him on that pedestal because of the things he tried to instill in me. But as I grew older and I experienced life, then I realized, you know, my dad was, you know, he was human too. And he had his own flaws. You know, he, he went through a divorce and, you know, he had children that he didn't see too much after, you know, after he married my mother, and, and uh, so you know, I, I you know, um, I still love and respect him, but I realize he's, you know, he's not God,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. so when did you make that shift? I, I love that you just said, you know, you you realized how much you loved your kids. Um, i I talked to dads who, uh, new dads who have their baby in their hands and they don't have the Hugh Grant, I've never loved anything so much I just met and I'm like, yeah, that's not how I felt. I felt very protective, like if you try to take this kid, I'll kill you but I don't think I love you yet, I don't know you. So <laughs> so when, when did that start to change for how you viewed your kids and your role as a father?
2: Um, well, when... <sighs> Well, one of the things that my wife said when we went through our our, uh, our crisis, she said, in spite of what you've done to me, you're a wonderful dad. And she goes, your, your son's hold you on a pedestal. And she goes, I don't want to destroy that. So until they're old enough to understand this, they don't know it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, okay. Um, which I think was wisdom on her part. Uh, because, yeah, I, I mean, I always, I, I think... Because I lost my dad when I did, when I was fifteen, and and, and I so such a, you know, I was at a point in my life where you know I you know all those questions that that young men have, and and now he wasn't there to answer it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had missed that, and uh, so I always was like, when I you know when I came home, I'd come home on a red eye flight. You know, I'd get home at six thirty or seven o'clock in the morning. I'd been on a plane all night. If my son had a ball game, I went straight to the game. Mm -hmm. I didn't miss any games. I didn't miss anything they were doing while I was there. Plus, when I was gone, I made sure they knew. You know, like if they had a game or there was something happening, I'd call them. I'd say I'd call home and say, "Hey, I know you got a game today, man." You know, when it's over, I want a phone call tonight. Somebody let me know what happened. So my boys knew, even though I wasn't there physically, that I was engaged in what they were doing.
1: So did that and, and, did that make it harder when things started coming out in your marriage uh, to that you felt like you might fall from that pedestal that you worked so hard to create, or were you okay well, with bringing well, them into the truth?
2: Well, again, the when when my wife said. They don't know about it until they're old enough, mm-hmm. and I, and I and I agreed. But but the realization when she discovered it, and now it was out. In that moment, I, I felt. I, I've never felt worse in my life because it was the realization because you're living a lie. You're, you're making excuses for what you do. Uh, you know, it's just hurting anybody but me and nobody's ever going to know. And, and, but now the cat's out of the bag and I realize I put at risk the most valuable things in my life, the things that I say that I, that are so important to me, I've risked that I've, 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 I've gambled it for the mm-hmm. sake of, of, of fulfilling my ego and I've, I've never felt worse. I've never felt more dirty or disgusting in my life.
1: So, what was the process of healing between you and Melanie?
2: Uh, it's about two years. I would I would say. Um, I know that when uh, when Mel she said to me, um, "It's amazing that they went." Through, and Pastor Hal had us come to St. Louis where he lives and. He ministered to us, and we went on a trip with him and his youth to the Chicago, and it was a big youth event that we went with him to this big youth event. And so I walk in the building; and there's 1,500 kids there. And they all know who I was. And I heard, you know, there's Ted DiBiase, the Million Dollar Man, and what's he doing here? And uh, the speaker that day is a wonderful man of God named Reggie Dabs. And when Reggie gave the invitation, I, I tell people this all the time. I said. I looked back and realized that's why I was there because what had controlled me for twenty years was pride, it was ego, image. And and uh, even though I had confessed to God, and Pastor Hal and Melanie, God wanted to know, you know, are you willing to humble yourself? Mm. And so when that invitation was given, uh, I beat every kid in the building to the front of the room. Mm. I went forward, I fell on my face, I cried like a baby, and um it was that, that was the true moment of surrender. Uh, God, you know what? I don't even know where we're going, and I don't care anymore. You're, you're now at the helm of the ship. I surrender. Here I am. Here's my life. And I, I seriously thought that I was going to—I really believed that, that my wife wasn't going to be able to do this, and I didn't deserve it. Uh, but when she said that, she said to me, she goes, I, I'm, I'm not going to make that a promise I can't keep. I don't know that I'm strong enough but I serve a God of restoration, not divorce. I, I have forgiven you, Ted, because I believe and I want to believe that you're sorry. I'm just not sure I can, I can stay. It's like I'm, I'm hurt that deeply, but because I want to be obedient, that's where it's used. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Well, that was two years of me, two years of me, uh, you know, in her eyes, you know, trying to become that man. That's, uh, you know, Pastor Hal gave me this great book by Ed, Ed Cole, Maximize Manhood. I recommend it to everybody about what a real man looks like, about character and integrity and being a spiritual leader in your home. And the man's only as good as his word. If his word's no good, he's worthless. And of course, I'm reading these words and going, boy, what a, what, what, boy, have I blown it. And then, and then the thought that, if my dad could see me now, he'd be so disappointed. Mm. Wow, that hit me like a brick in the head too. So, I was humbled. I mean, I was genuinely humbled, and and uh, it was like my wife's willingness to try. I can't I can't emphasize that enough. Forgiving me is one thing but her, her, her willingness to, to, to give it a try was like a, it was like injecting me with adrenaline. It's like, you're really going to give me a chance to prove myself. Okay, honey, just watch me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I just, I, you know, what my wife then saw over the course of the next two years was the change in my priorities. You know, I had now put God at the helm of the ship and my family right there behind god and then my business and uh you know so i start getting up she starts getting up and seeing me at the table with a cup of coffee and my bible and a devotional and then another devotional and she watches me start leading my kids in prayer and leading my kids to church and taking the charge and taking the role that i'm supposed to have as the spiritual leader and And uh, that's, you know, just like Jesus said, you'll recognize the tree by the fruit. So, as my life began to bear fruit, my wife witnessed it. And
1: uh, so uh, i, so t- I love I love the beautiful irony, though, that in the story you just told, your wife, here you are, uh, you know, Mr. Wrestler, strong, throwing people around. And yet she was the one that had, This manly courage about her during the years. So what, as you look back, you say, okay, here's what I misunderstood about masculinity and manliness. And here's what I found is true.
2: Well, you know, and I tell guys this all the time, I said, we live in a culture where most men evaluate their masculinity by stupid things, like how big their biceps are, how much they can bench press, and, you know, and what kind of car they drive and clothes they wear, teenagers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then as they grow to be older men, it's uh, Mm -hmm. how much money they make, where they are on the corporate ladder, you know, how big their house is, you know, what kind of car they drive, and and all that stuff, and, and how many women they can bet. And I say, I say this: any guy out there that thinks that's being a man, I got two words for you: grow up. I said because the measure of a man is the strength of his character, it's the size of his integrity, and is his understanding that uh, you know this is this is this is uh, foreign language to a macho guy. But be a servant husband. Jesus said. I came to serve, not to be served. And I give my life as a ransom for many. The son of God came to earth to show us how to serve. And I said, the more I have found that the more that I serve my family, the more that I put their needs and the needs of my children and going forward, my grandchildren and other people, the more I put those needs at the helm and at the front, the greater I'm going to be blessed. Um, like, again i get that question tell you you're really a millionaire i go no i'm not i said but today i have something that you can't put a price tag on i have the love and respect of my wife and my children and the unbelievable privilege of watching my grandchildren grow up
1: mm. well this is all now going to be a story that has been put together uh in the documentary, The Price of Fame. So how did that come about? And it's coming up on November 7th.
2: Uh, you know, it's it's I believe it's a God story as well. Uh, Peter Fierro, who uh, directed this and put most of it together, edited it, Pete uh, came to me like, oh, my, so maybe six years ago. Um, or seven, and uh, he was doing a favor for a friend and doing what they call a shoot interview meaning they're going to interview me about my real life, not wrestling storylines, and uh, so Pete did that because he was kind of a fan of mine, and well, when you start asking me real questions about my real life, you know, I'm going to start telling you what God's doing in it, and in Pete's own words, at the time, he was the, he says, I am the I was the backslidden son of a minister. And he said, Ted's story resonated with me. Uh, he said, and, you know, it it, it, it really convicted me and was the, the catalyst for me, you know, bringing my life back in line with God. And uh, so, you know, then anytime I was in the New York area, Pete would come and hear me speak. And uh, Pete's job, he, he does wedding uh, photography and video. So he documents weddings in the video. And so one day he comes to me and he says, Ted, he said, you know, I know you've written a book about your story. You tell your story all the time. He said, I'd like to tell it in film. I'd like to do a documentary on it. And I said, Okay, let's yeah, you know, whatever you want to do, Pete, that sounds that sounds good. That's different. Of course I had no idea. I never I never envisioned a fathom event that's 650 to 700 theaters all over the United States. I thought, well, this would be a nice little piece. You know, I can, you know, I can, you know, put this on the table or we can put it in the hands of people who need it, whoever we can help with it. Uh, but my son came along, Ted Jr. comes along and says, dad, he said, how about we tell your story? But we tell it through my eyes because hmm. my son by this time had he knew that I, I spoke a lot to men and about fatherhood, um, and you know, again, God has His way. <laughs> and because I had said, and I told my wife this, I said the boys have heard me share the testimony from from you know from a pulpit. And I said if they have any more questions, I'm going to let them in their own time. If they want to come and ask anything else, then I'll, I'll answer the questions. And she said, great. Well, you know, those questions didn't come until we did the documentary. Oh man! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and it's like you know, well, we 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 kind of knew, but we didn't know. And both of my, you know, I have three sons. My oldest son, Michael, is my prodigal. He's forty, and the reality is, he's doing real good right now. He's in a great program out in Texas called uh, Teen Challenge about to graduate in December, uh, Ted and Brett both are married. They both have, they each have a son and and both of their wives are pregnant right now. We're, we're finally going to get one girl in the family, but anyway, (laughs) uh, so they, they know what, you know, they, they know their dads now and -hmm. they know how they love their wives and they know how they love their children. And so again, just like me going, Oh my gosh, you know, what would my dad say? Yeah. You know, now they're going, okay, I know how much I love my my wife and my my son. Dad, how could you do that? Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, I you know, and I best way I knew how, I said, boys, it was like being totally a different person. It was like having two personalities. It was filling a void in my life. It was filling this emptiness by being on the road. There aren't any excuses. Uh, There are no excuses. I'm not making an excuse. I'm trying to explain to you where my mind was. And it was just selfishness.
1: So it's, it's funny that uh, Nate is watching me from the other side of the screen and can't say anything. He's He's been gagged, and yet he is about to go on a journey with his daughter that isn't dissimilar from this. So I got to know, uh-huh. when you're doing the documentary, and all of a sudden you realize, oh my, this is when these questions are coming, like, how did, did that terrify and excite you? What did you, you feel as a dad? I'm fascinated by that
2: moment. Um... Uh... Well, I, I felt, I, I felt the twinge of that pain again. It's like, you know, um, I, I, you, know, I you know, you know, you boys know how it's almost like you boys know how much I love you. You know, and I, I said, it, it hurts me to even have to say it, you know, to, you know, for you to realize that, that the, the dad that you look up to and admire could possibly have, 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 have hurt your mother so much.
1: Mm,
2: yeah. And, uh, um, but the, I'm just telling you, God heals everything. And, and but they under they 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 knew this. They know where we are today. They know how. I mean, they, my wife is my absolute best friend. I mean, uh, you know, Beth Medler sings a song, the, "The Wind Beneath My Wings," mm-hmm. and every time I hear that song, I I I, I almost break down and cry because that, that's my wife. That's who she is, and. Uh, um, she was a lot more, you know, it's like maturity, you know, like women mature faster than men anyway. Yeah. But my wife was way ahead of me.
1: Hey, you know, I think you've just redefined masculinity as the million dollar man has picked Bette Midler as his uh, tearful jam. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think you also are, are making an important point in that oh, it's scary and terrifying when your kids ask you those questions because you have to reopen that but the fact they're asking the questions meant it had been in their minds and their hearts before. And now you get to be a part of the conversation, the dialogue and exactly. then healing comes. So that is awesome. Well, yeah. November 7th, the price of fame, the story of Ted million dollar man, DBSI. How do people find out where they can watch this?
2: Uh, well, you can go to the price of or you can go to fathom.com. And if you enter your zip code I believe then it will tell you what theaters are available in your area all right and it's it's a one- day showing it's a fathom event uh, uh, Tuesday November the 7th which I understand somebody just told me that that is Billy Graham's 99th birthday and I'm wow. gonna take that as a, I'm gonna take that as a good omen <laughs> we, picked the, we picked the right day so uh, I'm hoping that you know people will go out and you know even if you're not a person of faith Uh, I would hope that you can take away from this that, you know, all those things that you chase after, fame, money, positions, power, prestige, all of those things pale. They pale in comparison to the things that are going to bring you peace and true joy in your life. and, And that is family uh, you know, and, and, and being able to look in the mirror and be happy with the person you see looking back to the most degree. Uh, you know, that you can be strong in character and you can be a man of your word. And uh, you know, I have that peace today and uh and I couldn't be happier. You know what? no, I'm not a I'm not a multi millionaire, not even close. Uh, but I have a I have a joy and a peace in my life. A peace the Bible says surpasses all understanding. Solomon, we spoke of earlier, you spoke, we brought him up. Solomon said this, and here's a guy who the Bible tells us was the richest man that ever lived. He said, above all, guard your heart. And uh, I couldn't agree more.
1: Awesome, Ted DiBiase, thank you for hanging out with the pirate monks this morning. We appreciate you. And we're looking forward to watching this uh, this film and getting to know you and your sons in a deeper way.
2: Thank you guys so much for having me on. I appreciate your your help and, and appreciate the time with you as well. God bless you.
1: All right. And we will be right back on the Pirate Bunk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast, Nate. How did it feel to have to just sit there and listen to the interview?
0: Oh, well, you know, I, so many times I wanted to jump in, but I, 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 it's such a, it's a new story and it's an old story. It's right. familiar. It's, it's, you know, it's that familiar. But God's at work, and, uh, and it's amazing how He takes. All of us down this similar road toward recovery. It's a beautiful thing to hear. I really enjoyed the conversation. And once again, Aaron, I got to hand you props. You're a very good interviewer.
1: Uh, well, thanks. It was fun. Uh, it was fun getting to talk to him. I was It was strange when this request came in because he was, you know, I had about a three-year window in the 80s of watching wrestling and it was back when I had the cartoon on. There was like the <laughs> Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant were all cartoons. So yeah. Uh, I, I was into it during that era, so so it is pretty cool to talk to a guy that got to get tossed around by, by mm-hmm. some old heroes. <laughs> mm. So, good. Anything else people need to know? You, they can be praying for next week. What day is the discipleship conference starting? Friday? Nove-
0: yeah Thursday, November 9th. It'll run November 9th through, uh, through the number, November 10th. Uh, registration is strong. We're expecting, I think, close to 1,500 people there. And, uh, yeah, and really looking forward to the debut of, uh, the new website and, uh, tell people how to activate the new app. It's going to be good.
1: Cool. Well, uh, don't forget to write in. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your questions and, uh, we would love to talk about them on the show. So write to us at pirate monk podcast at gmail.com. That is pirate monk podcast at gmail.com. And I think that's all the time we have for the day. Yes, although
0: we always have to say that three times. Isn't that a rule in advertising? That's PirateMonkPodcast at (laughs) gmail.com. Well, until next week, uh, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast.